welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by architects for the space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony, and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live, and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing, to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. Everybody, um, welcome to this talk on affordable housing. Um, I'm Lara Kinnear, I'm a director at New London Architecture and I also teach at the London School of Architecture just up the road. Um, I don't think this topic needs much introduction um, because it's something that um, has been, there's been a lot of discussion about across London for many years, particularly recently we've been holding um, a series of events on public housing at New London Architecture. So it's something that we have been um, yeah, discussing a lot in the last few months. Um, I'm delighted to welcome some speakers this evening that know an awful lot about affordable housing and have an awful lot to say about affordable housing. Uh, firstly in the corner, Claire Benny. Uh, then we have Patrick Schumacher to the left of me. Tarek Merlin here, and Callum Green. Um, and I'd like to probably get stuck into uh, their viewpoints straight away. But just before we do that, there's a couple of things that, um, from my perspective, I always like to think about when we're um, discussing really pertinent issues for London. And the first is terminology, because there are so many different terms associated with affordable housing. Um, what the percentage is of what is affordable, what isn't, social rented, all of those, and I'm sure those will come up this evening. So it's worth just bearing in mind that um, if you don't know what some of the terms are, let's gather those up and make sure that we make a list at the end so that anything that isn't clear, we make clear by the end of the talk. Um, the second thing is context. So we all know that London has a shortage of housing. Uh, we know there's an issue on how we deliver what we deliver and how quickly we deliver it and how much it costs. So it's worth just keeping that in mind as we talk about what affordable housing might mean for London or what it could mean. And then lastly, yeah, what does London need? What sort of affordable housing is right for London? What's right for the people? What's right for the next generation? What's right for the culture of this city when it's a culture made up of many different cultures and people that come from all over the world? So how can the offer of affordable housing be for everybody that lives here and that wants to live here? So that's a little bit of context setting. Um, I'm going to start by handing the mic to Patrick Schumacher. He's two to three minutes, and then we're going to pass on to Callum, and then to Tarek. Um, then to Tarek, and then to Claire, and then we'll have a discussion and then um, questions from the floor. So please be thinking of your questions as we go through. Patrick. Hi. Happy to be here second time. Welcome, everybody. So... I guess it's obvious that what's going on is a scandal. It stunts London's development. It makes many people's lives kind of less pleasant than it should be and could be. 
so um, what it ultimately is, I think, underlying this is a kind of mismatch between demand and supply. The demand is coming from this urban renaissance. We have a different kind of economy, uh, what I call post this network society, knowledge and creative industry economy, uh, which brings people together in these network hubs and, and where we also want to live in the city because we need to communicate with uh, uh, not only at work the few hours, uh, but also move between different companies and, and have evening sessions like this, gallery uh, witnessing, teaching, uh, looking at lectures, open exhibition openings. For that, you need to be around and be in the city, and so many people want that. So that pressure is clear. So I believe that uh, a proper market, proper functioning market could supply to that. So what, what that kind of skyrocketing of, of um, prices is really... Um, so massive supply restrictions on a number of levels, which so is the overall density of supply in terms of volume, but it's also um, land use uh, distributions where uh, there's many restrictions of what can be on residential, uh, where it can be built, but also uh, on the level of the unit sizes and standard and unit mixes, there's an enormous amount of restrictiveness. So I would just propose and say that we could easily, if you think about it, double density on average in all the developments which are going on. Uh, and then we also double or reduce by half the average size of units to get a quadrupling of people density per square mile. And that, that is possible. And Paris shows that it's possible. And London could do that. And there's this kind of... And, but Political restrictions hamper that, uh, not only through all these rules and regulations, but also through enormous delays in the planning system, which keeps, as demand builds up, supply is not coming. So we are two and a half years in, uh, in planning, cycling around on a project, and that's not been pulled to, by central government. It's going to be another year. By that time, maybe the developer gives up. So there's a lot of these delays as well. So, so that's on one side. Now, I also want to touch on, and I believe that we, the only way to have true affordability, if it is delivered by the market, because then we don't, then everybody can buy into that. Rather than now where you have a kind of small sub subset of people through rationing being delivered, and most are left without. And I think the concept of affordability is a real pretense and problem. I mean, usually, we meant to think about it as if this was some kind of uh, uh, average workers who will be supplied, but the bulk of it is, as we know, is kind of intermediate buying. And the example from my office is very clear. I mean, you actually have to, you have to earn, oftentimes it's a minimum of 45,000, 50,000, 52,000 to be even entered into this. Now, if you look at a firm like ours, over 400 people, nobody is eligible for, 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 for social rent. Even receptionists are making much, too much. So nobody is being delivered anything there. And then come, come to intermediate, most of them are excluded. And it's actually the senior associates and associates and only a small random group of this are getting there. I don't know how many we have, 5, 10, 15, 20. And all 400 would deserve some kind of support. And this kind of phrase of key worker is also a pretense and scam. I mean, uh, you can earn up to 90,000. It's between 50 and 90,000, those people that are delivered, gifted and, and, and delivered these, these properties and paid for indirectly by, by the kind of by our junior staff and everybody else who's working. And the social rent really is very, very low. It's, a minimum, it's, it's below or at 
uh, literally threshold is the minimum wage. So it's uh, only people who are actually not working or working only partially who are, who are in that. And, and this may be the smaller part of it. I don't know all the figures. The difficulty is here is there's no unified system which you can criticize. Each project is, has its own set of rules defined. And when you, anecdotally, what I experience is really every single case I come across feels kind of unfair, unjust, and unjustifiable, but we are, that's the politics. And that's why I give up on this kind of politics, and I think politicians should get out and, and we should let the market work, and the market works. It distributes, you know, uh, uh, expensive restaurants next to uh, fast food joints, into cheap restaurants, cheap clothes of all ranges, and, and, and possibilities are mixing in in London, and there would be and should be and could be, uh, but proper, proper affordability for everybody and not like we now, and, and the pressure is on, the pressure is very strongly on. Uh, and in my firm, I can tell you that some of the junior staff are spending 80% of their salary to where they want because that's existentially important. And if we, if we mess around with this and make everybody poorer on what really where we feel our wealth and sense of standard and moving up, is the resonance, the location, the place. And if we, there's a massive shock to prosperity feelings and sense if we cut this down and make that so impossible. So it's, it's an no, absolutely non-trivial uh, aspect of our lives, and that's been kind of, in inverted commas, mucked and messed around with by this kind of political system. I think the market would do a much, much better job of delivering. So that's my pitch. Thank you. Callum, what would you like to say in response? And what are your two points, or your two minutes first, and then maybe you might want to respond to some of that, or you might want to wait until later. Okay. Evening, everyone. I feel a bit like I'm in a boy band up here. Um, <laughs> we don't have a dance routine, I promise. Um, unlike Patrick, I probably do need to do a bit of an introduction. Hello? A bit of an introduction. So I work for London Community Land Trust. Um, we're a membership-led organisation. We've got 2,500 members across London. Any of you guys who live in London can join for a pound. Um, what people do is they gather in their local area and campaign to get hold of generally public land, either for free or at dramatically reduced values, so they can deliver 100% genuinely and permanently affordable schemes on those sites. Uh, and once they're built, all the homes are owned, managed, run by the people who live there, um, all of whom will have come from that local area to try and retain the social capital that they will have developed uh, over decades of having been in that place. In terms of affordability, what we mean um, is you link the price of the homes to local incomes. Uh, average local incomes, so they are affordable to people uh, in London. Uh, average income is around 30,000, so they are affordable to people on 30,000. And why we do that is, if you, let's say you were going, going, wanted to buy a bike, you wanted a really nice bike, you went to a shop, they told you it was £400. If someone asked you, could you afford that bike, you would go and look in your bank account and see how much of what you had there you could afford to spend. If they then told you actually it was worth £500, it was only 80% of the open market value, that would have no bearing on whether you can afford the thing or not. It's about how much money you've got in your pocket. That's what matters in terms of the definition of affordability. I think unrelated to the definition of affordability, there's a kind of bigger challenge that also exists here. Um, so some people started to write about this in the late 70s, early 80s, Colin Ward and others, about it's not just about the supply of homes, it's not just about the affordability. In the 50s and 60s and 70s, they built a lot of homes, a lot of them were affordable. All problems weren't solved. 
there was a bunch of failures that included not giving people control over how those homes were owned and managed in perpetuity. So you got this affordable home, but you had no say over what happened to it, what happened to the common space, what happened to the green space outside. And I think we're missing a trick here, only talking about affordability and supply, when what most people want, and the reason why home ownership is so uh, focused on in this country, is because it's really often the only way you can get control over the place that you live. Thank you. Tarek. Thank you. Um, I'll probably pick up on a couple of the points that you've both been mentioning, actually. The, this idea of ex existential idea of owning something and achieving this dictionary definition of what it is to achieve. And then this conversation about um, what it is to um, be part of a community and, and how that looks and feels. Um, I sort of wanted to start by telling you a quick story. So basically, I'm going to talk about the culture of generations and how we evolve and change over time. And just tell you a little bit about me and my parents and their parents and then a little bit about you and the future yous and the yous that aren't here. So my mum, Catholic, Arabic, very kind of strict family background. My dad, English, conservative, Church of England. Very kind of uh, typical their parents very typical in their strict family upbringing. They were the great generation that came in uh, post-war and um, my parents rebelled against that. So my mum's running around Beirut in uh, Audrey Hepburn makeup and micro miniskirts and my dad's chasing after in skinny flared jeans, a giant afro, driving around Damascus in a clapped out Mercedes with a kilo of hashish in the boot, apparently. So, uh, it was the 70s, they were hippies. Somewhere in the 80s, they, uh, they lost their way and they settled down and they became baby boomers. And we were a bit pissed off about this. We were, we were also running around as kids in places like Paris and Tehran and Beirut and Turkey and loving it. And all of a sudden we were in Croydon, which uh, is getting better, but at the, at the mid 80s, Croydon was bleak. Um, they instilled in us, the baby boober parents, uh, we were the Gen X kids. So they instilled in us work hard, study, save, invest in property, accrue, uh, reinvest in property and save for your retirement. And we all did, we all did. The entire Generation X ran around wherever they could, snuffling up properties and gentrifying poor little rundown areas until they were in it, unaffordable for anybody else. If you couple that, sort of era with the 10-year recession and the 10-year politics of austerity that followed and the Bank of England's quantitative easing method, which essentially was just pumping money into the system to avoid a recession, which just pumping money in just creates inflation, which just means that things get more expensive, which basically all means that we fucked it for the millennials. They are fucked. There's a statistic from the, the garden. Sorry, guys. One in three UK millennials will never own a home. Half will be renting in their 40s and a third by the time they claim their pensions. But to this point about, existential point about why we pursue ownership, we have sort of fetishized this concept of ownership and possession in our culture. And it is a particularly British obsession with possession, I feel. Um, we need to work on that. And, and in fact, the UK millennials will inevitably be renting most of their lives and this will create their own kind of generational shift and 
in the way that the culture sees status. I mean, you, you generate status as a baby boomer Gen X by having a house and 2.4 kids, and this won't be the same for the next generation. And just to talk a little bit about Gen Z and Gen Alpha, so Gen Z are growing up really without owning stuff. You know, we're, we had those, like, I don't know, sticker books and CDs and DVDs and floppy disks and did all your work on zip drives at the Bartlett, but none of that exists. Everything's in the cloud, it's subscribed to everything. Nothing own, is owned anymore, and I think that's really important for the uh, coming generation to teach us to release ourselves from the shackles of the idea that it's only important if you have it in your possession and it's no one else's. I think that's crazy. Um, and then the next generation, Gen Alpha, as far as I see them coming through, they care absolutely nothing about objects and trinkets. And they care about really strange things like values and principles. They talk about um, you know, equality, diversity, sustainability, and particularly in their, in their politics and, and, and where they get their stuff from, their food and, and how they consume. So there is a cultural shift coming that I don't think the property market is ready for that we, I hope, can explore um, and add some kind of level of tangential thinking to the way that we think about property. It's not about just building bricks and mortar to create stuff to sell at high prices and um, wh whatever that means in terms of buying and owning stuff. You don't really own anything. You just owe stuff to the bank and you buy and sell your debt to other people who are more stupid enough to buy it from you. So I, I'm sort of proposing a new model of living that isn't about ownership or renting. It's a new kind of more fluid, um, accessible and changeable idea of living, which is subscription living is the name I'm giving it, but it's a bit, a bit cheesy. But it's about being able to move in and out of where you live without a shit ton of possessions without taking three or four months to try and sell your property, without signing up to some kind of horrific contractual rental agreement that's only in favor of the landlord. Could there be another way that we can create housing stock that isn't so fixated with ownership? Over to Claire at the other end of the bar. I'd just like to thank the boy band for their greatest hits. Um, you've now got the head girl over here, and you're going to get a bit of maths and history, I'm afraid. We've had the poetry from over there, so now it's the maths and the history. Right. Can you tell me how much does it cost, don't include land in your answer, to design and build a flat in London? Come on. No, just per unit, average. That's pretty good over there. Very good. <laughs> 250 to 300 grand, roughly. Okay? So if the net rent you get in the door is about five grand a year, and that's a kind of quite affordable, and it's net, don't forget, because you've got to pay a lot of money to look after that home, your return is about 2% at absolute best. And that is just not sustainable. Money doesn't want to do that. Public money doesn't want to do it. Private money doesn't want to do it. So we've got a gap here. I'm not saying, you know, there's something sort of evil or problematic here. It is just a technical gap. If you do a home that's properly affordable, it does not stack up and nobody wants to fund it. So this is why, Patrick, the market simply doesn't work and something needs to fill that gap. And I'll come back to what I think that is. But I'm just going to go back to my history for a minute because that gap has been filled uh, for about the last 150 years. 
Affordable housing started in the mid-1800s. You all know the lovely sort of philanthropists who kicked it off. In fact, they were bankers. Interesting. And nobody's doing that now. Um, George Peabody had to have a 3% return to make it work. He was, you know, properly philanthropic, and he would say, I can't, the landlord business has to be sustainable. I've got to have that 3%, or I can't carry on building stuff and making more of it. Um, so that actually meant that the rents that they charged were reasonably high relative to incomes, and it's not what we'd call a social rent now. So there was one gap being filled by the philanthropists at that time, relatively high rents. Council housing, state-run, started at the end of the 1800s. Uh, you had capital subsidy for most of that. I'll tell you, at its peak, uh, the state, uh, and Patrick will love this, um, paid about 90% of the cost of building each social home because they knew that this maths didn't work, basically. It, that changed to about 50% of the cost in the 90s, and now we're at about 20%. So when the GLA gives people money, it's only about 20% of what it costs, and that still leaves uh, a huge problem. So how is affordable housing afforded by anyone now, or whether it's being delivered by um, uh, housing associations or developers? Basically, you need cross-subsidy from sales. It's not an evil thing. It is just the reality that you need to make a profit from one thing to subsidise uh, the other thing. So there's the technical gap. Now, we've got a psychological gap as well. Um, we all know that there's essentials in life, right, from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're boring like me and you like that stuff. Um, you know, you need to be sheltered, warm, um, you need to have a drink, some food, etc. Um, but there are just some things on that very first rung that we're prepared to fund as a society and some things that we're not. So health and education, you can try and monetize them all you like, um, but you simply can't. Uh, and so somebody has to step in and provide them. But what about shelter? Uh, since the 30s, really. Everyone thinks Thatcher invented uh, home ownership. She really didn't. It was the 30s that kicked it off massively. And then again in the 60s. Um, we... Sorry. We resist the idea. We wanted to own homes over here for whatever reason. And we absolutely have resisted the idea that shelter in any way requires a subsidy. It's kind of, there's a culture in this country that you provide for your own home uh, and other people won't. That's in our DNA somewhere. Um, so that's understandable. Right, I'm going to have to shout Sorry. Right, shouting. Here we go. Sorry. Not long to go. Um, so we can't keep on ignoring that because we've got a massive problem now between what people earn and what a home costs and so that whole system of being able to purchase is broken. So psychological gap, we need to accept that the state, not in all cases but in some cases has to step in and join in and intervene. So how do we bridge the viability gap? I'll have four really quick bullets for you. Um, make an active decision, all of us, to generate Gap funding from a national crowdfunding initiative. That's called tax, by the way. Um, of course, tax is currently being um, pissed up the wall, frankly, on a major national vanity project. But anyway, let's, let's reallocate re that tax to housing people. It's at the very bottom of our hierarchy of needs. Now, the public sector's got loads of land. Brilliant. And actually, that's free. And it's worth a hell of a lot of money. And somebody will pay a lot of money for a home in Hackney or Camden. And that will cross-subsidise something else. That's actually a really good way of like sweating out the money we all own 
to make more affordable homes. Give free public land to Callum. There's another great way of doing affordable homes. Um, and actually allowing places like London to raise their own taxes to solve their own particular acute inequity problems. It's fiscal devolution, right? There's a lot of money in London. You might have noticed we're all spending it right now on pasta and booze. Um, and, you know, some of it should go somewhere appropriate for London. Right, two final points. Um, bigger points, really. Campaigning. Architects are not going to solve this, frankly, because you've got to design something at a third of the price you design it at right now, and it's just not going to happen in order for that to work. You've just got to go out and campaign. Structural stuff like land use policy. There's a shelter report today. There was a Labour Party report uh, last week. Land is the thing that is the problem, um, and we need to talk about that because they ain't making any more of it unless you're in uh, Holland. Um, so... But, you know, land evokes incredibly strong emotions. Um, there's one phrase, uh, compulsory purchase order, which is about as popular as replacement bus service as a, as a three-word term. <laughs> Finally, most radical, you could campaign for a national spatial and industrial strategy, and many are. Lord Kerslake's doing it at the minute, which takes the heat out of this crazy place that we call home, and it distributes work and prosperity to where the spare land is. Um, it's been tried about four times in the last hundred years. It's never worked, but, you know, it is mad that we're all trying to sit on this dot. Okay. back on okay thank you very much claire and our other speakers boy band over here um so i'm always struck by us having the same conversation that probably a lot of other people have had and not just a week ago or a month ago or a year ago or 10 years ago what is it what can we learn from what we've seen in our history um, as to what might be the answer for the future because we've heard a few suggestions of what we need to change and one of the ones picked up on something I said at the beginning, which was uh, what's right for London, what's right for people in London now and in the future, how do we make sure it's about places, homes, and how we move about the city, not just about affordable homes, uh, which was Claire's last point. So, Patrick, you've been around a while in London. You've delivered lots of housing. Um, if, well, a bit... I lived all over the place, so I know, I know London incredibly well, and I've never used the kind of uh, social systems because they weren't available to me. But and and uh, one thing I want to say in terms of standards, for instance, uh, you just mentioned uh, this kind of subscription living. I've been interested recently a lot in uh, co-living, and there's an, we've worked with with the collective, and we the, the the planners are blocking that. There are many schemes up in planning, stuck in planning, and. Can anybody please explain to me uh, what gives these characters the right to prevent a product which would actually deliver true affordability to a new generation, which are excluded? They don't give, get anything in return. And I just find the trust in this kind of... Um, if we say here we have great ideas to, 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 to plan a whole kind of uh, real estate economy, um, that's one thing. I think it's too complex to do this, and there's too many openings to game this. But and also, you have to think through the realism of how this 
grinds through the political system and who in the end benefits. And you have to, I mentioned before, who's actually benefiting is a certain income group, which I guess is somehow the kind of marginal voter which both uh, the parties kind of vote for and everything flows to them and this kind of expectation that allowing politicians to run with this would actually deliver to what we think should be delivered, I think that's why I, I gave up hope. And I know, for instance, one thing that I've been talking to somebody and a number of people who are really um, and, um, want to help a former CEO of Quintain, he's talking about social rent products would actually be financially viable if the land prices would be much lower and you wouldn't have to deal with right to buy downstream and you could put up in the commercial markets long-term bonds with a very, very low interest rate and you could make that work. And, and, and I, I believe uh, these kind of analyses and I don't believe that there's some kind of technical gap. Uh, so so you've you, just you mentioned a few things there that I think could be very strong suggestions because my question was going to be, what are the two things you want to change within the current system well, of delivering affordable I, I, housing? I, I think, for instance, I want co-living to be given a real chance and not just coming along with the right of the GLA to kind of kill the discovery process before it started. I think that's very, very important. Um, and the other thing is there's these guys uh, called Yimbi. They have the idea, for instance, if you look at the density of London, it's very, very low. If you, you have a high, this is central London here for me, right? You have, what's going on? There's, the, the density is atrociously low. The equivalent arrondissement uh, in Paris would be three or four times more dense. If you then add unit sizes, bring them down to what we really need, because we don't have these book collections and clothes collections and much smaller households, mostly single, we would literally be able to quadruple and, and, uh, the, the, the density. And it would be nice. Look, all these kind of fields of two-story terrace houses, why not let them at least street by street decide to go up to kind of a Georgian five-story? Uh, you would kind of more than double the, the, the density. You would have a more urban character. And I think but these things are unthinkable here because everything is frozen up politically. That's where I think the, the problem lies. It's not technical, it's social political. So high density co-living. Yeah, absolutely. How do you make that happen? Because it's not just about Get the, the planners out of the way. We have to make a conscious raising. Land banking, land banking. <laughs> no, it's not land banking. It's, 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 there are many schemes on the planners' desks and others who are trying to pitch for sites with these concepts, and we keep hearing the planners don't like it. I had a visit of a, there's a global association of, of, of co-living entrepreneurs, and the thing is taking off in Paris, is taking off in, in, uh, in Berlin, it's taking off in other places, and I think that's a great model, and, we, and, and it's a discovery process, but who's, who has the right in the local bar to, uh, you know, to say this is, unlivable or this is wrong, there's something false about it. And another thing, I mean, so many schemes get, get kind of held in, in, uh, in check and are prevented. I mean, Bishop's Gate Goodyard, a, fan a fantastic site in the center uh, of London of the, uh, with, with multiple schemes. And I've looked at the text, I've looked at the refusal arguments. I mean, it is, doesn't stand up to public scrutiny. It's, it's willful, it's atrocious, it's, 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 it's horrible. And that needs to be challenged. Okay, let's come back to other big schemes across London in a sec. So I just, uh, rather than put up your hand, cough if you're a planner. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Cough if you're an architect. 
<laughs> Cough if you're a developer. <coughs> Cough if you're a citizen, a resident that's interested in this. Anyone? Cough if you're a journalist. <laughs> and anyone I've forgotten? Oh, engineers. Cough if you're an engineer. Okay, good sprinkling, but a lot of architects in the room I can hear. Okay, Tarek, what, what would you like to share in response to what you've heard across the panel? Um, just that I think there needs to be a greater balance. I don't think there's any one solution that's going to fucking nail it for everybody. People, some people want to live in a Georgian townhouse, and that's all they'll ever want, and that they will rail against, with rage against, high density. Some people want high density, and some people don't want to rent or buy, which is sort of why I was arguing the way I was arguing, that I believe there's a future generation that doesn't want any of this shit. They want something else that's much more fluid and flexible and allows them to live out their lives in London for a few weeks, in New York for six months, in Belgium for a year. And for that to be doable, and to do that with the current model of buying and renting is impossible. You can't do that because you are tied down. That's Airbnb, for example, has shown us that this is the future of the way that people want to use hotels. So everybody's suddenly changing, but the housing market is so stagnant and weirdly tied up with developers and local authorities. That's why I'm sympathizing to some extent with what Patrick's saying, is that the red tape that surrounds housing development just to get to delivery, let alone to be able to sell or buy, is so um, complicated and convoluted. We just need a... I think what I would say, though, in, 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 to contradict Patrick, is that it, there has to be a government-led angle to this. It can't just be a market. That there, there always has to be a, a balance. That There's this motto that we have in the office, the truth is in the middle. The truth is never at the extremes of the argument. I said this last week, I think. <laughs> I mean, and then the, I point is this, the point is this, let's say on the standards, which everybody's kind of defending with, with tooth and nail. The, the fact is, you can set these standards, but they're not affordable to anybody. I mean, none of my people can ever get into it. So, uh, uh, and in fact, we have an informal economy. Uh, well, this is kind of illegal to build and deliver. Underneath, people live in ways which are seen to be, uh, and most of my staff live in kind of flat shares, uh, you know, um, uh, former council flats. There's an enormous informal sector, and if you look at New York as well. I've heard recently, I've just heard uh, uh, in the discussion, there's an interesting book out by, by uh, um, Alain Bartraud, 40% of all current residents in New York are illegal, but they're hotly desired. So who is creating these laws? <laughs> I mean, illegal to supply now. And, and in that's, what way are they the, that's a form of insanity. Tell us what way they're illegal. Because they're too small, for instance, or there are too many units on a corridor or elevator, and all sorts of, or no, there's no terrace or balcony attached to them, and all sorts of things. So you can legislate. And then you have the dream of selling these beautiful houses, which are available to a minute segment of the population, and far too little of them. And then you kind of feel good about. You seem to kind of you 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 kind of uh, saving the world. But in reality, underneath, we all live in, in 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 different places. I mean, I've lived all my life, most of the time, in these kind of places. And that's the reality. And you don't you don't alleviate that by having a pretense of a kind of clean product, which is which is which isn't available. And 
even on the social rent side, you say you have that, but there's massive queues. There's no, this is actually a lottery, a kind of rationed, pet groups are so-called key workers who, who, who get some of those. I mean, it's really not working. And we can keep, that's my point, we have to look at the reality of this, not what could be nice to arrange, but what calling for people to step in and arrange it for us uh, and, and write these rules, what actually happens downstream, not something which is defensible. Okay. Do you think we've got the mindset, though, for what you were describing, Tarek? Do you think people want to live in the way you've described of not owning? We've seen it, you know, car culture's changed. Lots of people are happy to sell their car, rent. Um, do you think we can make it, um, uh, you know, popular for housing? really on just here, me and Patrick. <laughs> but um, the reason why I sort of went for that angle is because I already see it changing. Isn't it already changing? When did you last get home in a rush because at 7.30pm your favourite TV show is going to be on? You know, you binge watch a subscription network. You don't wait for the BBC to broadcast it. Food, clothes, there's Rent the Runway where you rent high-end fashion and it comes to your door, you wear it to that event, you send it back, somebody else wears it. This is how it's happening already. It's not the future, it's now. And it's in a kind of like clunky, blunt version of what I think it's going to be in 20, 30 years' time when Gen Z and Alpha are starting to spend their money. And they're just not going to want to have uh, the clothes in their closet hanging there waiting to be worn. They'll just rent it and it will come. You can, you can order a Magnum ice cream, cookies, my favourite one. It's in your home in 30 minutes on Uber Eats. Who needs freezers anymore? Like, so I'm just like... <laughs> Making a silly joke about the fact that we won't need these things anymore. They will come to us and we'll, it will use them cyclically, not own them forever. I can't help think but time is a big issue on that, though, because what is it, 35% of uh, London population is, is young, and so anything, the other 65 aren't going to be the people that want to order their Magnum ice cream. They want to have it in their freezer, and they want a six-pack as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right, over to Claire. Okay, just a few things in response to some of the stuff we've heard. I actually want to hear from everybody else, but um, I'll just do this very quickly. So, actually, I never thought I'd say that I agreed with Patrick, but on, stand on space standards, I kind of do. Actually, every single home where I live is under space standards, and they're still highly desired. So I think there is a, a problem there. The, problem, the thing with standards is you've got to stop the worst from happening, so you've got to stop people doing terrible things, and you've got to set a benchmark somewhere, and maybe they've set it in slightly um, the wrong place. Um, and also, if you set the standards lower, the land value will rise. It will kind of pop out in some other place uh, in, in the bubble. Um, even with free land, the rental stream you get when you've built a home is not investable. I just want to throw that out there. Um, and land supply, um, I, mean, I sort of agree to an extent about bureaucracy and red tape, but the idea that London can just massively densify, that it's so complex, this one. London is not dense because it's got 38% of parks in it. Um, it's got a whole load of, sorry, but privatised land. 25% of London is back gardens. Hello. Um, so where, are you going to build on that? And are you going to get a whole bunch of people in two-storey world to sell their homes and build blocks of flats? No, you bloody aren't. You know, it's just not going to happen. Um, so it's blowing hard to densify this place. Um, and it just does suggest to me that we're trying to do too much on this dot. Thank you, Claire. Okay, I have one other topic to bring up before I open to the floor, and that is the green belt. 
there's been a bit of discussion recently about um, that being re-looked at. And there was a great quote last week at the London Real Estate Forum that said, uh, well, someone was saying, we think we can look at, you know, unleashing one notch of the green belt without the trousers falling down. Do you think that is the case? Should we be looking at the green belt to release some land for housing? Callum. Yes, broadly speaking, and that there's lots of green belt that isn't actually what you'd recognize as green belt. So uh, parts of the green belt that are forest and are actually remain beautiful or are used in that kind of way should absolutely be protected. But a lot of it looks pretty much like brownfield land. But again, I think we're getting stuck in this idea around uh, land and housing supply being the solution. So I think that what you're hearing here is 10 years ago, no one said there was a really a problem. What you're hearing now is everyone accepts there's a problem and there's lots of really interesting diagnoses going around the room about what that problem is. What you're also getting is some very early stage suggestions for what the solutions look like, which mean a lot of them sound a bit mad. I, still, I don't think we're in a place collectively for having figured out what some of those solutions look like. As far as I'm concerned, I think you need to hold in tension the uh, more immediate, pragmatic uh, solutions with the longer-term land reform solutions. So it feels to me like you will need to find some way to capture land value, whether it be by tax or before the sale has happened to try and reduce land value. You will need to find ways to pump more money into the delivery of new affordable homes. But at the same time, there are local pragmatic things that, begin, that can be done to increase housing supply. Um, I think market solutions, there isn't any example uh, in our history to show that the market can supply the level of homes that we really need. So unless we're going to intentionally try and create an entirely new market of house builders, which is, would be an interesting suggestion, if we're going to rely on the existing market to do it, um, I don't see how they can, how they can meet that um, meet that supply level and also they've geared their organisations in such a way to be focused on the financialization of housing and land rather than the delivery of successful housing. So they aren't really focused on that level of kind of expertise around how you do, deliver good homes for people. Okay. Yeah. Patrick? Could I just quickly jump in? It was just you? about what this Claire very cleverly um, talked about land values and you just have the, the issue with adding more units at a smaller size on the same piece of land means the land value goes up so the unit's going to go up because people will pay more and it's just like a weird cyclical um, financial nightmare all based on this traditional notion of ownership so there does need to be just trying to make that point again a balance between a kind of government led initiative to create this new version of whatever housing delivery could be without leaving it entirely to the market because the market will inevitably drive up price. Well, well I, I dispute that you would initially... I mean, I'm not talking about just one measure. That's why also when I talk about the green belt, if you only release this but keep the city where people really want to live locked up, then you're pushing artificially into the, into the green space, which is a suboptimal. I want all these barriers to be released simultaneously, and then the market can figure out what's really value for money. And then you would have both land prices coming down, and if you have more people sharing over that site, the aliquot part further going down per unit. And you would get much, much more affordable units and houses and ways of living. And I think that's what I would expect. And, they, and, and that makes sense in terms of theory. There are also examples of that in, in, in other cities and places around the world. So, so we can't just say one thing, uh, you know, green belts open, but all the, uh, everything else is locked up here. And I do believe, by the way, that, yes, the, the YIMBY proposal was the following. Give each 
street by street, the, the residents collectively, the right to come together and increase the street density, for instance, double that. And I expect, because the, the value, the value exploitation of the land, because land values is one thing, they kept the scarcity of land is not the scarcity of real land, the scarcity of land is developable land, and the land values which have been skyrocketing as relative to GDP in recent decades are permitted lands. Unpermitted lands is useless, but also permitted land isn't equal permitted land. There's residentially permitted land, which is four times the value of an equal site across the street, which should be in the market process equal than a kind of office uh, um, 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 plant site. So there's enormous distortion, but also if you would increase the utilization of these sites, uh, th then you would get much more land utilization. So, so I would believe that that these restrictions have to come down all at once or maybe gradually phased out, but all of them, so that there's not artificial choices. And there's a lot of, time, a lot of times in the economy, you penalize one way of earning income through, if, if for instance, through, through uh, you have a lot of income tax, but no dividends on, on capital gains. So people shift around what they're doing. And so there should be kind of symmetry and evenness so that all ways of living are equally free or unencumbered. And then you can find out where, what's really the value proposition uh, for, for, the best, for the best. And I think the, uh, the, the scarcity is very, very artificially created. So I would expect... Uh, unless you think that kind of London becomes infinitely <laughs> attractive and would keep drawing in from the whole of the world everybody into London, I don't, I don't see that necessarily. So there is, there is just an imbalance uh, in, in terms of um, um, uh, supply and demand, and it actually hampers. Maybe London should grow more dense. Maybe we should have a, a more integrated and more versatile labor market for everybody's productivity and everybody's opportunities uh, for both firms and for employees to be in that mix. And I think now we have a situation where, and it's not only here, but it's also in New York and San Francisco, where a lot of people who are attracted to London, who would want to make this choice as entrepreneurs, as workers, to develop their career, to have this make tough choice of staying kind of away, going into kind of provincial zones where their career is stunted because of that huge penalization through through these supply restrictions. And we also, I said this once, you talked about park, all this green land. Uh, I once made the provocation that we should look at Hyde Park. And we need to tease out what the justification is. I mean, for instance, to keep all these preserves, even something like Bedford Square, where I'm kind of going into the A and I see it every day. It's used like three times a year, maybe for graduation, it's gonna be this week, and then it's kind of a few officers looking at it. It's great, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but that doesn't help the guys who can't afford central London, and that all these greens exist, and they might stroll past them and, and I feel good about it, but that it implies that not go there, that they have to kind of, for the, for the next 20 years, spend 80% of their salary to live in a crappy place. <laughs> That's the kind of trade-offs we should open up and the market would open them up. And if it's worthy that the, the people around Bedford Square say, we purchase that view and prevent the kind of, let's say, okay. Brunswick Center again there, why not? Why can't we mention the Brunswick Center and Bedford Square? So, and right, we're these, gonna, these we're gonna open up to questions now. <laughs> the kind of questions we're not allowed to answer because everything is frozen up politically. Thank you. 
I think one of the key points from what you just said is where do we go to discuss this? Where do we take the conversation after this? So it'd be good to come back to that after we ask for questions from the floor. Okay. Where's the other mic? Here, right beside me. <laughs> I'll give it a go first. Um, okay. and, um, then, and then I, I'm coming back here. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll push over there. Um, Claire, I would vote for you if you were running for the Tory leadership. You would definitely beat Johnson Johnson. Um, but, Patrick, I, I actually agree that um, um, there's a problem with politics in this, and that's why I opened with an election. Um, and why I would vote for Claire. She talks sense. But Patrick's right. The, 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 the problems po politicians, we, we as architects, go through the planning system. Planners try their best, but ultimately they're trying to appease the council members that are voted by the locals in council elections, which are influenced by who knows who goes all the way through Rupert Murdoch or whoever else on, on, on what um, ideologies being thrown down our throats to keep us kind of um, believing that our lives are all about the spectacle and what we can um, do to entertain ourselves without actually doing things for ourselves. So in some ways that's why I can understand Patrick's logic because I think there are scope and ideas out there for architects, designers, entrepreneurs to do something different with the spaces. And I disagree with the person I would vote for. <laughs> Sorry, Claire. Because I think London does need densification. And I think you can build on top of stuff, in between stuff, in people's gardens. And you can be quite inventive about it. And London is very, very... Um, spread out and there is a lot of parks and there is a lot of gardens but there's an awful lot of in-between um, former um, gap sites and if you look at the Aber Abercrombie plan for example with all its bubbles and eggs and all those spaces in between and what they thought that plan was flawed but London remains a set of villages and all the spaces in between where villages can and communities can still exist there's still the possibilities for doing something interesting but we've got to change the politicians' minds the, and, 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 and open up planning for a little bit more scope for providing inventive ways of producing housing. Yeah. Okay, back to Petra. Yeah. Um, hi, Petra Marco, Solid Space. Um, I've got two questions. One is on market forces and the other one is on tax. Um, so on the market forces, I think the panel didn't touch on and I'd like to know your views um, about the global market forces because we didn't touch on the fact that in London there's huge amount of empty properties. Um, I haven't got the figures, but there are empty streets in West London uh, and you only have to go up um, in the new Tate Modern Extension and look over at the new Rogers building where people have been you know, in legal proceedings against Tate Modern, but in fact most of them don't occupy those um, fully glazed apartments. Um, so that's one question, you know, what, how do you think um, that can be addressed in order to bring more housing back um, in the loop for people to actually occupy that? Um, and the second 
point or question is about tax, and Claire um, did a really good point about uh, the subsidies of government going from 90% to 50% to 20%, uh, that culturally it's seen as not something that should be subsidized. But then when we look at really good examples of housing, we look at countries like Denmark, we look at countries like the Netherlands, we look at cities like Vienna in Austria, where there's huge government subsidy for housing. And some of those places always come up on the top list of kind of the most livable cities. Um, and it's also the places where taxes are really high and there's culturally an understanding that by paying these really high taxes, there's huge benefits, not just in terms of housing, but in terms of public services, in terms of uh, transport and movement and connectivity, what we talked about, you know, amazing cycling infrastructure in other cities um, that have high tax base. And there's huge um, resistance to capital gains tax in this country, where, as a millennial, this makes me really furious because the value of owning a property and that making and generating income over time without a person having to work actually is much higher than the value of labor. So then, sort of <laughs> just making a point on Tariq's thing about this transience of you know, our millennial existence, I get your point. And in, in a lot of things, it is transient and people want to live more fluidly, but actually they can't just be in flux constantly. Um, you know, small babies and toddlers can't be in flux. You can't be moving around, um, uprooting them every now and then, as, as much as it sounds like really doable. Um, so I think there's this kind of view or pressure of... Um, previous generations that, you know, we should be just getting on with things in, in a very kind of slick way and just navigating without possessions. And I think in practice, it doesn't always work, although there's great examples that you've given about other lifestyle choices and trends that we can embrace. Um, so yeah, sort of the, what, what, you, what would you do with the empty properties? And uh, I mean, we know uh, Patrick's view on the free market and Claire's sort of opposing that. So maybe just uh, how come those other countries in Europe have much better housing and they have very high taxes? Is that not Great. something that we should look at? Thank you. And just before I... Just before I pass to Claire first, I did look up the statistics for how much social housing are in a few countries. So apparently Holland is the most with 30%. Still not as much as I thought, but quality, I think, was one of the main points you made. Then we've got Austria at 24%, Denmark at 20%, UK at 17%. So whilst those numbers seem to say that we're not that far off, we know that it's actually there's a big gap between 17% and 30%. Okay, Claire, market. I'm going to keep this quite short. Empty homes is, is really interesting. Um, I did some research a few years ago about it. So there's 3.6 million homes in London, uh, and London does have its own problems, and you're absolutely right to say it's a global city, there's investors, and in a way, that's what makes it different fundamentally to the Vienna and all that kind of thing, um, which doesn't mean there's no international investment there. It's just on a different scale. Now, out of 3.6 million homes, allegedly there's 120,000 that are just sitting there as boxes. So it's around the sort of 3% mark, which is quite a lot, but it, it's not structurally, you know, it's not 
20% of homes just sitting there. And that's the kind of figure that people often think it is because they do see the stuff from the tape, but they don't see the streets and streets and streets of occupied homes in the burbs. And most of London is the burbs. So um, I don't say we shouldn't be worried about it, but I don't think it is the structural problem. The problem with international investment is it just pushes prices up enormously um, for various reasons. And so that's the thing. Um, I think that's probably... Oh, I should have said, <laughs> of course, in a way, there is a subsidy. Um, it's called housing benefit. The English housing benefit has gone up from something like six billion to 30 billion in the last... 20 years, I think. So we're, instead of building things, we're just giving people money. Um, and 40% of that housing benefit goes to private landlords. If anyone wants to get incredibly cross about something, that's the one. Um, so that's it from me. Thank you. Um, actually, I th these kind of social housing schemes in Holland and, and, and Austria and so on, I, I'm not so keen on this because these are kind of these typical sub-urban estate-like development usually. I mean, everything which comes through the bureaucracy is this kind of regulated, highly standardized uh, product and it doesn't make for the city we love and want. We actually still living of a 19th century city which had none of these state agencies at play at all. And these are the real cities we actually still live on. And, and the kind of political system just generates this kind of dreary, monotonous uh, places. Um, and, 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 and that's why I think what Steve said, Urban, is so important. I think if we had a real inventiveness uh, unleashed and get this horrible paternalism, this kind of uh, false paternalism out of the way, we would actually generate a very, very different product from what these kind of social housing estates or these products are, which at the moment uh, uh, killing the city more than anything. So that's what I believe in. And... and, uh, and uh, we should remember what we're living off. And necessarily, 19th century was without any planning agencies of that sort, in big state, politically regulated. It was private planning, and here the great estates, for instance, where there, somebody has a real the, uh, value creation on the ground. And if I think if there was some co collective action mechanisms to get overcome, um, let's say, negative externalities between properties and so on, it would be the property owners who should come together. And they actually do this with land owner associations. That's where it is, because they had the ground, they represent end user value and end user concerns. Whereas a kind of a voter who, and who is actually voting in local elections, I don't know. It's a very, very small minority every four years. And then having councillors who I don't know what they're listened to and influenced by, and only one thing, that their decisions are atrociously irrational. <laughs> and so I don't believe in that. And uh, I think we need to really, these, these estates are not, not the city we want. Absolutely no way. So, yeah. Um, the denigration of politics in this way is deeply, deeply problematic. You end up with this kind of bizarre dystopia of like a technocratic city run by the architects and developers who know what's best, which fills me with a lot of fear. For me, the answer, politi politics is not the problem. Is, is In many ways, it's the solution. So if people would stop proposing prototypes that they took a really nice render of that they were able to put in architects magazines and instead were part of broad-based campaigns like the one that Shelter has been part of and tried to move the democratic 
mandate in the country towards this kind of thing, then you could make these kind of proposals realistic. But to say that we need to take politics out of it, you know, being, being elected by 40% of the electorate is better than being elected by none of the electorate, right? So it's better than nothing. Let's make it better. Let's have 70% of people voting, 80% of people voting, and have them learn about what a good planning system looks like. But the idea that we should take politics out... Can I, can I just put like, in there? I mean, sorry. Sorry, can I, I, I've got the... Patrick, I've got a microphone. Um, sorry. Callum, I, I don't, I'm not talking about a technocratic change of politics. I'm talking about like almost like a hackney resident for 25 years where I'm coming in here and we're making our own way in this part of Hackney before, you know, it gets super gentrified. And I actually look around and I don't, you know, gentrification is a different argument, but I feel sorry for a lot of young people who are trying to put up with crazy things that they're facing in terms of housing, but also crazy thing that you, things that young architects, small developers, medium-sized developers are having to put up with at a political level. Yeah, so I guess it's about this terminology piece again. So I would call that politics. So I wouldn't call, yeah, the, the big P politics is one thing, but that to me is the kind of work that we would do, and that, that is what I would say a suggest, uh, kind of successful approach to politics might look like. So I think. Look, what, what I find is usually it's the politics of prevention, because you're always safe if you refuse and say no. And that's just happening far too often. Yeah, um, my name is Andrew Ronson from HOK. Mike, I'm hearing a lot of people saying, or setting up this, what I hear, what I see as a false dichotomy, that the solution is politics or the solution is the market. Um, and when I look at the reality of modern Britain, I see a politics where a lot of political parties, or at least a very large one, sees its bread buttered by protecting and increasing the value of housing. Um, and I see a market that sees its bread and butter in providing too few houses. And the political sphere and the market sphere, they're not in competition here. They're aligned. And they're happy in that alignment and happy in perpetuating this system where we subsidize the people who already have the benefit. Um, and I don't see the benefit, I don't see the, the I, look at, I look abroad, I look at my different experiences in life, I look at Canada where there's essentially zero state housing, um, but home ownership's quite accessible. You know, in Edmonton and Montreal, a home's three and a half times a family's income to buy. Um, or I look at Vienna, where essentially all the housing, and a lot of it's really good, is provided by the state. I, can, I even look at really poor countries like Ukraine where home ownership is much more accessible and in many cases better than a lot of the things I see people living in in London. Um, and so I want to throw the challenge out, not whether politics or whether the market's the, the solution, but how do we actually fix both our politics and our market to provide an acceptable solution regardless of whether which direction it's in? <laughs> you look exhausted and <laughs> flustered in the corner. Okay. Let's take two more questions and then we'll, we'll go back to the... Yes. Hi. Um, my name is Matilda. I'm an architect. I've been working in London uh, for the last four and a half years. And I was an architect in France before that, working in Paris. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Paris earlier. And I just wanted to throw um, five things that actually are happening in Paris, not, don't happen in London. Um, three of them are 
prior planning process. So in France, we buy per square meter, not per bedroom. So that's one thing already, because you can buy, you can want a one, a one bed that is not 50 square meters. You want something different, or you want a two bed that is 100 square meters, you buy per square meter, which I think would make a difference here on the market. Um, two things prior planning. One is um, you have to comply to a lot of rules because there is a strong local plan in Paris. So essentially the volume of the building you're going to be able to build is set by rules. So there's no faffing around with like, I'm going to add an extra 14 stories on top of that. It's just, this is what's happening. I think this is what makes the planning system maybe a bit quicker and delivering housing much quicker. Um, so the coefficient of the building footprint is set, the volume is set, and I was wondering whether this is something that we could start to implement in London so we would stop like waiting with empty lands and wait for, them, for the value to grow, and I would like to have your opinion on this. The other thing, and this is going back to Petra's point, I think, is um, in France there is a tax on unhabited uh, properties. So if you live less than six months in a property, you have to pay a special tax. And also you have a special tax if it's your second property or third or whatever. So you pay an extra tax if it's not your principal property. So same thing, like would this be... I mean, they're really little tax, so when you're able to afford uh, you know, many properties, it's not going to be a problem for you. But they're looking into increasing that, and I was wondering if this is something we should start looking in London as well. Okay. Thank you. Special taxes? Yes. <laughs> Vacancy tax. Um, um, the taxation, I mean, the empty homes issue, God, it, I wish somebody would fucking solve that. There are empty homes all over London, no believing in them. How does this make sense? It doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't have the answer. Like you said yourself, that if you tax high net worth individuals to for purchasing um, properties, the property price goes up, and then only people that are higher net worth individuals and then will buy them. So I don't know that that's the solution. That the solution has to be from the state that they have to somehow. I don't have the answer to that. Somehow, re I mean, it's going to get to the point where they'd have to refuse purchases from overseas buyers who are not intending to live in them. But how do you actually do that? I mean, there's a few points. I mean, I'm glad to hear about the kind of 3%. I always had the feeling that this is an exaggerated point. And we need to see that um, London is a growing city. Uh, there's a lot of investment required, and Londoners and UK citizens are not saving. So, so we're absolutely reliant on and shouldn't put any barriers to the inflow of other people's saving. And it also means they believe then and they're right that London is a good value proposition to build here, to come together. We are productive. We are, we, there's a creative industry, productivity, which is built and supplied. And foreign capital is absolutely essential for that. Uh, the problem is that, um, and I agree with you, that there is a kind of collusion between politicians and businesses. And the restrictions often work for the big firms the red tape sorts for them. It keeps foreign uh, entrepreneurs and developers out because they can't navigate this thicket. It keeps smaller uh, firms away because they can't afford all these planning um, uh, consultants and the time spans and so on. And that is another way. I mean, I agree with you. So that there is a um, businesses adopt to this and you get a kind of monopolization which isn't an inherent market process. This is actually a kind of what I call crony capitalist interventionist 
uh, um, uh, condition. And I, um, so if you open up the market, you would have, you give chances to many, many more people. Uh, who, who, who can come in and be really entrepreneurial. And right now, there is no competition. Uh, so the product is preset, absolutely. Not only the volume is preset, and I would agree with, in fact, that sometimes there's discretion and that makes these long delays. So I prefer rather a planning system which has clear and strict rules rather than an endless negotiation of, of discretionary. But usually what they're trying to do, they set the volume, they set the unit mix, they set the numbers of units at, at, on the core, the, the number of the balconies, each room, each size, each piece of equipment. So. Uh, um, uh, uh, overviewing distances, right? There's nothing much left. And then they also want to impose brick and a certain kind of stylistic rubber. I mean, it's really for architects, it's the kiss of death. There's nothing you can do. But it's, I'm not only thinking about the architects, it's the entrepreneurs. They can only now compete actually on gaming the system, on trying to squeeze down the kind of affordable requirements. Or uh, that's what they're not competing on product. They're competing on, in a way, kind of rent-seeking political gaming, and that's incredibly unhealthy. And that, but the, I've come to realize that's what you always get. You have this nirvana fallacy of inventing all these wonderful schemes, and we're going to democratically kind of uh, uh, set this up. But we don't have time to, you know, all of us to spend five hours a day to controlling that and later downstream seeing this. And the strange thing is that the most socialist and most kind of collectivist societies are the most corrupt and the stagnant and the backward. And, you know, and, and we've seen it with the Soviet Union, we've seen it with the catastrophe of China, we've seen it in Venezuela, but the, down that spectrum, it is really worse, going worse and worse and worse. And that's what I see. That's why your fantasies of, of taking over and running, is, it's basically you're ending up with an interventionist spiral which ends up in a, in a state-planned society where we only end, it's, it's equated with you, 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 you're stuck in your flat, you never get out of it because it's irrationed to you. And you and it ends up also then forced labor in a way because you can only work <laughs> and you can never be uh, fired and you can also uh, never be kind of hired, therefore. It's, everything is frozen up. I don't want the society. I don't believe in the society. And, and I think we're living in a totally different world where we can have a really thriving uh, uh, place, an economy, with, 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 without this kind of fantasy that the bureaucrats will save us. They will not. They can't. They don't have the information processing quality. They don't have the incentives. And they're also just people like us who, 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 who kind of flustered when they look at their work. And if nobody is pushing them, there's no profit incentive. I mean, I know from my firm that if you, there's every single project, we can spend triple and quadruple of time and resources uh, if, if we didn't have any kind of profit and loss signaling. And you feel good about it. Yeah, we, we spend another three weeks. We put three or four people. You're quadrupling it. But imagine everybody would work like this. That's the way the state bureaucracy works. We would have a quarter of our kind of prosperity. I mean, it's killing us. Can, but can that change? Can, can you change that governance structure so that there is that resource there in the right quantity? It's by, by reducing scope pulling scope away from these processes and empowering individuals through their choices where they want to live and do and who they want to contract with and work for and what kind of rental contract they want to take and also as well as entrepreneurs you know what kind of business you want to offer what kind of product you want to offer we need to have kind of a rebalancing of responsibility and we should also learn that we not when anything is wrong we call for somebody big state or politician or government it's just people like you or us you don't want to deal with it but you think there's somebody who's going to do it for you they won't 
That's the fallacy. I call it the Nirvana fallacy. Thank you. <laughs> okay, question over here, please. And then there's Hello. two or three um, here as well. This is kind of a different tack, but um, a TfL in London give um, cheap bus fares for people, and if you, could get, you can get on the bus, you can change buses, and you can get on another bus, all for the same fare. It's done for a very specific reason, which is the poorest members of our society typically take two buses to get to work rather than taking the tube. And that is a more, that, and uh, you know, we're, we're, we're looking around the edges for solutions to problems. Is it a fundamental human right to live near where you work? Mm. Claire, yeah. in the corner. Slightly annoyingly, I just want to go back to this gentleman who says that the market and state are in league, and I, I tend to agree. But I just want us all to look ahead a bit. Um, I don't know, 2050 or something like that. Um, there is literally going to be nobody that qualifies for a mortgage. There's going to be nobody to sell my mum, bless her, her flat to at some point. Um, it's going to be a serious crisis that just of, of equity, as it were, that just changes everything, absolutely changes everything, in my view. So I think that system that you've talked about will naturally just fade very quickly. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody threw a brick through my window at home and kind of um, squatted my flat at some point. I, I do think about that sometimes because those of us who own are just enormously privileged. Go on. I know, it's gut, gutting, isn't it? I, I, I understand. But I just think everything's going to change. And I would say in about 15 to 20 years because equity is going to go into 5% of hands. We're going to be back where we were in 1910, I think. And interestingly, I think that home ownership will one day be seen as a blip. I'm not sure I agree with Tarek that nobody wants it anymore. I think everybody knows that it's, it's the capital gain that helps them to retire, as it were. So the entire system is going to have to change. And I can tell you now that lenders are just in a panic because they don't know who they're going, who's going to qualify for one of their mortgages soon. Yes. Um, hi. It's less a question and more a, a comment or a reflection. Because I always think when, when people sort of embrace and talk about the market as if it's so radical and we're entrepreneurs and we're held back by the state. I think we just have to look at the grand sweep of history in our country. And actually, we've embraced the market since Oliver Cromwell. And sometimes that's worked really well. And maybe it worked well at the start of the Industrial Revolution. And, um, you know, maybe it worked well, um, you know, in the computer age. But actually, there are times when the market fails. And when it's failed in the last at least 150 years, the state has stepped in and the state has done a huge lot of important um, benefit, public good, in fact, they used to call it in economics. Um, and, and in housing, that was um, between the wars, when there wasn't enough housing, when soldiers came back after the First World War, providing homes for heroes, after the Second World War. Um, and I think now we could say that we're in a state of crisis, not only in crisis in terms of climate change, but in terms of housing. And unfortunately, 
successive governments over decades have done so much to unravel the strength, particularly of local authorities, to be able to build houses, um, that um, we're, we're in this terrible mess where we have to rely on house builders, house builders who are the least able to build houses to sort of provide the majority of the homes across the country. And so actually I think, you know, a word of caution when we're trying to embrace the market is, uh, you know, now is the moment to just reflect on that. Um, well, the market was kind of uh, left behind in the in in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and and it, uh, Britain ground to halt. Look at London. I mean, what what a place. Uh, what a kind of Britain falling behind. Britain, uh, London being kind of dreary and and drab. And London was actually a shrinking city, and a lot of the the uh, the population increase went into I guess suburban um, developments which weren't necessarily government supplied at that point I don't know and the, and, the, and in any case the city which can be generated like this is is a more of a kind of a suburban type of city I don't think it's the the kind of city we 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 enjoy and live in and we we are now living back and 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 re inhabiting um, the historical 19th century city and want to densify that and I think that's what where we, where we can't rely on the state simply because they don't have the information and they don't have the market feedback the signaling of prices and profit and loss uh, you don't have that so you can go on for decades to provide a wrong product and you will don't get a feedback of because of highly subsidized for free people keep taking it but that doesn't mean that they would in fact, see it as value for money. In the end, they pay for it indirectly through unbelievable amounts of taxes, which were coming in this period, 60, 70, 80, 90%. And it turned also the whole of British nation became a kind of a nation of tax evaders and benefit fraudsters. This also eroded, massively eroded any sense of decency and, and moral fabric in this country, whereas, whereas Britain was on the capitalist uh, conditions was, was, was known for its kind of integrity, the, the ability to trust and the English gentleman as a kind of hero of moral kind of rectitude and, and reliability. All of this kind of got that was kind of eroded down the drain and, 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 and of course there was a turnaround in the 80s with London and that's why are we are all here in London. I don't know where you're all from or uh, you know 440 people from all over the world in our office because London has been incredibly uh, a thriving place under neoliberalism. Nobody here kind of, we habitually hate this phrase and uh, we seem to be rejecting everything is so with it, but that's why we're here. <laughs> okay, we've, we, um, we want to try and be succinct as possible now as we go around questions and comments just because we want to fit in quite a bit still in the, in the next 15 to 20 minutes. Callum? I think the history of London's house building by Patrick Schumacher would be a good four-part Channel 4 series. Um, give Kevin MacLeod a run for his money. Um, <laughs> I think there is a. There, I think it's right that we've set up a false dichotomy between the state and the market in this room this evening. Um, I think a lot of it is about what level of granularity you're talking about. So if you talk about really big state solutions or big market solutions, you're inevitably going to end up with um, kind of big 
planned premise, uh, uh, planned proposals, whether that's planned for 20,000 homes by a big house builder or planned for 20,000 homes by the state. I guess the this idea that whether it's uh, the state or the market or community-led housing, that you do fine-grained granular exercises and try and release that rather than release one particular sector, I think is something that a lot of people in this room would support. Um, and also does begin to kind of uh, get you to the kind of city you want rather than let's knock things down and rebuild it all in one, one big swathe. Um, so I guess I'd kind of like to make the case for not choosing one sector over the other, but that kind of fine uh, granularity to the way in which we, we increase density and build more affordable housing. Right, this is going to be super quick. Uh, when the market was let rip, was actually the 30s, interestingly. It took up a hell of a lot of land at about 15 dwellings a hectare, and that's the, exactly the stuff you hate, Patrick. Does anyone have a question about style? Because I'm really struck by what Claire said, everything is going to change. So how do we design, what do we design, who's it for if everything's going to change? So someone please ask a question about that, otherwise I will. Okay, you please. Sorry, it's not that question. Um, <laughs> um, and I'll try and be really succinct, uh, I think. Um, it's, it's probably, it, there'll be a question in here, but it's going to be a bit of rambling very quickly first. So, quickly, yeah. Um, so I think a, a lot of people have talked about, you know, the fact that there's empty houses, there's, you know, it's not affordable, that we need to change the laws, you know, and planning and liberalise and, and all this kind of stuff. And we could let market forces, if I'm not wrong, decide to bring down pricing. I think that's wrong. Um, I actually think, because I'm, I'm from one of the countries that was brought up earlier, from, from Copenhagen. And, and actually there, the answer is simple to how you stop foreign investors coming in to drive up the prices. You make it illegal. Um, you, actually, um, you actually don't allow anyone who doesn't live in the country to buy a property there. That's the way it is. Um, and you also, like in, um, I think it was brought up in France, you also tax on homes that aren't your primary home. So if you want to try and make an investment of um, the property market, um, then, then you get taxed for it. Um, and through that, it's actually affordable to live there, and you don't spend 80% of your income on, um, on where you live. And it's not all socialist tat. Um, you know, it, there is actually really, really good housing stock there. So I suppose my challenge coming from there is to say that maybe it is not a liberalization of the rules. Maybe it is actually just saying, look, let's stop making property about profit um, for, for individuals coming in and looking to make what's a basic necessity a profit-driven game. That, that would be my, my statement, I think. It's stop making it a profit-driven game and start making it for the people who actually need it and live there. And I, I see you're shaking your head, Patrick, so I'll let you answer it first. Thank you. Very valuable contributions. Well, first of all, the profit system is always a profit and loss system, right? And, and that's very important and, uh, to have that signaling, that bifurcation. Because if you don't have that, as I said, you keep sinking resources into something which, in fact, is consuming more value than it delivers, but you don't notice this because you keep drawing it in from somewhere else. Somewhere, somebody will pay for that. Now, the good thing is about, if, so if you make a profit on a site, that means you put ingredients together, land, 
values and, and, and resources and labor and energy. And what you create when is valuable, more valuable to people with their real kind of hard-earned incomes. They want that. That's worth it. It was a, a social net benefit. And if you miscalculate and you run a loss, then you're actually consuming resources. Um, um, and you 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 using up more resources to generate a product which isn't appreciated and valued below what you put in, and then you're out of business. And you should because you're doing a um, net loss. You generated loss, net loss to society, and that's why we need that profit and loss signaling. And wherever that where that is absent, you actually do not have economy at all. So this idea, yes, in a mixed economy you can get away with it. The bits and pieces which are generated by um, uh, by uh, government rationing distribution, they all they probably would always run a loss. And, but in the end, we all collectively pay for that. It means we, we're doing suboptimal resource allocation. And in the end, it's a kind of uh, short-sightedness. But they keep, you, you don't notice. And if you run that large, when you said there's always more and more and more, you want to socialize the totality of the real estate now, in the end, you have a socialist economy, which is an oxymoron because socialism everything planned without price systems, without profit and loss signaling is not economy because you cannot economize. Because you don't know what the opportunity costs are and you don't know, you have nothing to guide, no compass, no signaling and information processing which resources to use where. And that means you're kind of, you're flying blind. And that's what, why all these societies collapsed and become so sub-performing. Actually, they would have been sub-performing much worse if they had lots of black markets, uh, which, which were still delivering some kind of economic rationality. So that's the insight we have to work, buy and work with. And what you want is, if there are certain collective actions, some kind of planning, and I accept that. And that can be delivered through private actors, associations, initiatives, bottom-up, or as I said, private planning. Planning, the way we understand it, was actually introduced and invented by the great estates. So I'm accepting that. But they're responsible for the overall value proposition. And they had some clever ideas about lease systems, etc., and, and, and covenants. They had various ways of regulating and ruling, but they were responsible, not you know, and they had, a, they, they had this incentive, that feedback, that direct profit and loss feedback f feeding into them and getting them signaling. Because not, if we as a company wouldn't have that signal all the time, as I said, we would quadruple, easily quadruple the resources we use. So the houses and plants we would generate would be kind of atrociously, in, inaffordably expensive. And we would be all poorer for the, for in, in effect, much, much poorer. Uh, thanks, Patrick. Um, I'll just talk really briefly about what we started off talking about, Patrick, was that idea of this e existential notion of achieving something and buying something and what success looks like. And we're just talking about value now and profit. And that, what, what, is, what is value? So I, you know, in my little provocation, I talked about buying and selling debt. When people talk about, I own my property, you don't fucking own shit. You own the debt that you owe to the bank and you're going to sell that to somebody which is just, I, I don't know, it's getting a little bit, we need an economist in the room. <laughs> it's getting a little bit philosophical about what it means. <clears throat> Not me. <laughs> what it...
Thank you. Hi, I'm Hannah Sandina. Um, I'm a developer, not an architect. Controversial, I know. Um, so I have something just to kind of throw out, um, more as a question to everyone. Um, so firstly, my observation about society, and not from an architectural development point of view, but as a society, we're capitalist by nature. And so one of the reasons we're all here today talking about affordable housing is because it started to affect each and every single one of us, or 95% of the population. Before that, it wasn't really an issue, you know? The idea of ownership was important to us because it was achievable. So talking about, you know, densifying London and taking someone's Georgian house and building up on it, I just it doesn't benefit the individual who owns that plot. And I can't believe that anyone who would own a Georgian house in London would happily sell so that 20 people could live there. Like, I just don't see that ever, ever happening because individually we're selfish, like, just who we are. And I think that's something to admit as a basis for all of that, like, just as a starting point. My second um, offer to everyone here is, so I'm an East Londoner. I grew up literally in Haggerston, down the road. I'm still living in East London, in Newham now. And I love London, like, completely. This is where I'm from, you know? Um, and I've seen this change. And the only reason we moved out of our house because it was CPO'd by Hackney. It was a council property. And... I, I have a question about this idea of densifying London because, yes, I agree with Claire, London's doing way too much, but London's not the only part of the United Kingdom. Like, going back to Tarek's point of view, we are completely digitized, like, digitalized, sorry. You know, work isn't only in an office in central London. It's on your laptop, and you could Skype your team now. You don't need to be in the office, and you don't have to travel every day. If, we're, if we don't have to be in a specific place at a specific time, why do we have to live in London? It's no longer a requirement. And it goes back to the question in the corner about do you have to live next to your work? Or, yes, I agree, you should if you have to be there every day. If you don't, I think you can live literally anywhere in the world. And it, so it, it goes back again to Tarek's point about this idea of security, about housing and the fluctuation. We want to feel secure where we're living. We want to feel secure about our ownership of our goods and the things we've purchased and acquired and the family we've grown. So yes, we want a permanent place, but because we are so transient, we don't actually have to be where we're working. So that's another thing just throwing out there. Good points. Anyone, Tarek? Do you want to... uh, yeah, I, I wanted to. I forgot to mention actually this idea of tribes and communities and sen a sense of place. Um, there's conversations talking about that, and there's no longer, f to me anyway, to this provocation fixed in a particular set of bricks that are stacked up on each other that create your home. That I mean, interestingly, I'd might need to hear from you a bit more. You stayed in the same place your whole life, but. Um, I'm certainly talking about the idea that we'll move a lot more and be more transient in, in where we exist, and that your sense of community is not necessarily fixed to that house where you first lived or that local area, but fixed to the community of the tribe of people that you move around with, and that tribe changes as your life changes. It's, again, it's slightly kind of esoteric or thinking about a future culture that's less fixed in one place associated to a building and more fixed to a group of people that move around. So just I, I so I agree with the idea of a tr like having a tribes and communities that move around with you, but 
fundamentally your family, i.e. your tribe, would be right where you are. So all my sisters live in East London. So why would I move anywhere else? If I, like, when I have children, they're going to be my nannies. Like I'm not going anywhere else in London. So that's just another thing. Like maybe it will change in the future, I agree. But right now, like we're still very much about our community, our sense of place. Thank you. Um, one last question, because we need to wrap up, um, sadly, but you can keep talking after this. Unfortunately, it's not a question about style, which I know you were looking for, but it's more, it's more the question about, um, I well, think everything Patrick said, I almost like 90% fundamentally disagree with what he's trying to say there. Because if you think about it, actually proposing sort of market freedom within the short to medium term is actually unleashing sort of pandemonium on London and a lot of people will massively lose out until the market eventually finds its own way. If the market's going to find its own way, you're leaving a lot of people that will be lost out in that interim term. And, and actually, the, what I fundamentally get obsessed about is the idea of the individual. So we talk about the individual and what the individual needs, yet we're already talking about in the world of having a climate emergency. Actually, it's the whole globe that's got to solve the problem that one person can't solve it. So why are we still talking about individual needs, individual gains, individual homes, when actually the idea of the co-homes uh, co and living together in that respect, and the idea of almost, I can see how a subscription home uh, opportunity could work. It wouldn't be for everyone, and therefore you've got to get that balance. But not only that, how can the individual, as you as yourself, want to deliver a series of homes when actually you require the state to provide the infrastructure within that area? Suddenly you densify a whole area. Where's all the shit going to go? You're going to have to get the water board in in order to actually build the infrastructure for that to go in to begin with. You can't live without the state. In one sentence, what's your response? Um, even that, if I accept that hypothesis, we could do live with a lot of less state interference and with much more um, distributed, individualized, and entrepreneurial. Uh, and that could also include free associations and charities and non-governmental organizations to step in and have initiatives going. And, and that's what, what I'm calling for. And maybe, yes, maybe there's a bedrock of, of, of state provision, perhaps, perhaps not. Uh, but we ha we, we, we're way, way, way beyond, beyond that. Um, so, yeah. Okay, final comments. Callum. Uh, I think I already did it in that it's back to state market, this way, that way. I don't think it matters as much as um, the granularity of what it is that you're trying to do in terms of creating good places. And also we need to be able to do both, um, talk about pragmatic, immediate solutions, and also talk about the big questions around land and tax um, that often we're scared of engaging in. Um, I would say to summarize my position is that we have to remove ourselves from this obsession with possession and ownership and private ownership. And that as we do that, the market and the state will move with us and the culture of how we live will change and evolve. Well, I mean, well thanks for everything. Uh, the conversation was very, very cool. But and I had a reflection on, on what we were saying about, about this kind of community living. And um, uh, that's a kind of exception maybe now. I mean, I have lots of siblings, but they live in, spread around the globe. And um, I think what we need um, in a place like London, it's what it's big cities make sense. They are big integrated labor markets where you have many, many choices of work, even in, in each single profession. And also in terms of the entrepreneurs, the kind of pool of 
workers and, and, and also collaborating firms. And that spreads around London. And, and I believe with what you said is right. Usually we want to live more and more close to the, to the home. So we need to be relatively mobile and fluid between places. And that's why I find, agree with you, that more and more this idea of owning a house uh, freezes it up. Yes, you can maybe sell it, but then it, it is, this takes much longer than switching uh, rental accommodation. You, you, you have stamp duty. It's a huge thing, and you rather not do it, and people don't do it much. So I think that's very bad for the overall productivity. So that means much, much more general social time is wasted in commutes, etc. And the reason of owning, in fact... Okay, is that the end? Uh, <laughs> Uh, as a financial saving vehicle is marrying two pieces which should be independent from each other. If you had a proper professional rental market, not like here where you rent something which an owner has and they might kick you out, you can also be very feel very stable. You move when you want to move and you can make your, your, your home your home and make, make investments in it. If you think I stay here and rent here and it's stable, in a competitive market you also save some form of rent hikes, but you're very quick and moving around and I think that's, that's what, what would be better. And I think this, um, this owning thing is, actually it started when we had the government started to mess up the whole financial system through record inflation um, um, uh, figures and people kind of went for the kind of real assets as their saving vehicle. But actually, in real fact, it's a non-diversified asset. It's actually quite risky because these prices could also fall. And they lock your mobility. They hamper your career development. And you're freezing up. So it's a bad idea. I think we should move away from owning. It's way outmoded. I agree with you with that. Into some kind of a professionalized um, a rental market, which could be very, very well uh, um, uh, serving all our needs. Thank you. And Claire? Turn it on off. On off. Is it as simple as that? Yes, it is. Woo! Um, I just want to recommend uh, two books to the room. And I think economics gets a bad rap, not surprisingly. It hasn't delivered much re uh, in the last 20 years, or it's been wrong. Um, but I think there are a bunch of new economists, uh, particularly women, actually. Um, Mariana Mazzucato at the UCL wrote a book called The Value of Everything, um, and it's all about how the state and market work together. And I think everybody knows that this discussion has been, you know, the opposition of those two things, and I think they can work together and should work together, and I recommend uh, her book. And I also recommend uh, Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth, um, because she too talks about a massive structural change that's needed in uh, how we conceive of GDP and economics in general, and it's not sort of um, cloud cuckoo land. It's actually uh, a fantastic and inspiring book that I recommend to everyone. Thank you. So in conclusion, we need to change politics, we need to change planning, we need to change people's views on what density is, we want to allow market to deliver, we want to redefine value, we want to potentially loosen the green belt, we want to um, get rid of housing uh, committees in local authorities and make them people's committees on housing. Uh, we want politicians, oh, to give housing proposals, maybe as part of their electorate campaign. Um, and we want to talk about, well, I want to talk about style. What does affordable, <laughs> what does affordable housing look like um, in the next five years to 50 years? Who's it for? What do we want them to feel? How do we want them to be part of a community? And how do we want them to move around the city? Okay, that is another, that's a very quick snapshot. 
planning, market processes, the irrationality of planning and the pretense of planning and the rationality of markets in the urban in particular. I mean, the, there is some role for planning there, but it's a very, it's a, a highly recommended book from my side to you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much to our panel. Thank you very much for your questions and your participation. And please keep talking about this very um, hotly debated topic and enjoy your food and your drink. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.